0: the digiday podcast my name is tim peterson i'm the senior media editor at digiday
1: and i'm Kaylee barber media editor at digiday
0: Kaylee, this week you spoke with Faye Turner, who is the head of Commercial Strategy and Insight at Hearst UK, as well as Ryan Buckley, who is the head of Digital at Hearst UK. Hearst UK, I mean, like many publishers, I imagine, is spending a lot of time talking about data and first party data. Um, What did Faye and Ryan have to say in terms of how they're going about gathering up first party data? Because it feels like that would obviously need to be the first order of business for any publisher moving forward.
1: Right now, in general, a big trend that we're seeing from publishers is really trying to get audiences to say exactly what they're thinking and asking them to be very responsive um, to any surveys or or, um, panels that they're forming. So that's what Hearst UK is doing. They've created a bunch of panels of audiences that they can ask questions to, survey, um, even get their insights into like... You know their commerce businesses and and products and things like that that they have um, you know in their in their different um, editorial initiatives and things like that. So they're taking this very you know hands on approach to talking to the audiences directly. And uh, we talk about this quite a bit in the beginning, but they have like, you know, 50,000 people that they've gotten to participate in, you know, different panels of various sizes. So that's one strategy that, you know, Hearst UK is doing, but we're also starting to see kind of pick up in different areas um, throughout the industry as well.
0: And a related trend that we're seeing is clean rooms, which was a big topic of conversation during the Digiday Publishing Summit in late March. And so Hearst UK as it's gathering up this first party data, to what extent are they um, putting that first party data into clean rooms in order to, like, one, protect that data, but then also be able to make it available to advertisers in a supposedly privacy safe way?
1: Yeah. So this is actually a big topic that we got into during the episode. Um, Ryan was mentioning how appealing clean rooms are. And I've heard mixed things, you know, through the publishing summit. Um, you know, there was some hesitation from the the publishers that we had in the room. Um, but for Hearst UK, it seems to be this, you know, very attractive area. Um, I think because the concept of privacy is, is so significant, especially in the UK. So... That's one topic that we talk about quite a bit. And Ryan really explains, you know, what about them are appealing from the, you know, ability to, you know, do data matching and and be able to kind of really see intent and and track behavior. But then there's also some hesitations as well. So we do get into that and and talk about some of the other, um, you know, alternatives to third party cookies that are circulating in the industry right now.
0: Cool. Sounds like a fun, albeit slightly technical conversation, but I'll let you get it into it thanks Kayla.
1: thanks Tim Ryan Faye thank you so much for joining us on the podcast how are you guys doing
2: really good thank you and thanks very much for having us
3: yeah I'm good too thank you great to be here
1: So this episode, we're getting into a really robust and fun topic, which is data collection. And um, I'm really eager to kind of talk to you guys about your approaches to that, because I feel like Hearst UK, um, you have had to deal with GDPR for a little while now, so you have those privacy measures in place, I'm sure. Um, But I know in general, you guys have had... um, a few different approaches to data collection that I think are like rather interesting, um, and so I'm I'm excited to talk to you guys about that. But before we get into the the different areas of data collection and how you use those in campaigns, could you just I guess introduce your your title and then also kind of you know where you sit in the company from a brand standpoint or
3: even just like with the types of clients that you work with. Faye, we could start with you. Okay, sure. Um, So I'm Faye Turner. I'm the head of commercial strategy and insight. So I effectively have two teams reporting into me. Um, One is our strategy directors who work very closely on the commercial side, um, and we ensure that there's a great quality of work that goes out the door for our commercial partners. Um, Very closely linked to the insight and the data functions of our business, but really helping our teams. to create great narratives, to create great campaigns. Um, And then the other side of my team is the insight team. So we do a huge amount of work with um, gaining audience opinion from our fantastic audiences that engage with our brands. And we actually work across all brands, all parts of the business, um, and they lean into commercial and also editorial, as well as the marketing, consumer marketing team um, and business strategy. So we touch a little bit of every part of the business.
2: I'm Ryan Buckley, Head of Digital for Hearst UK. Uh, I've been with Hearst now for about five years, and my responsibilities cover uh, programmatic, digital display, social, some of our tech partnerships, commerce, and of course, topic of the day data. Um, You know, whilst we kind of look at uh, how we develop all of these areas, My core responsibilities are how we keep pace with the uh, evolution of around digital but also how we enhance you know these new emerging technologies and initiatives around data and obviously commerce uh, which is the topic of the day um and i think you know for me personally i'm really proud to be working and representing the hearst uk's 21 brands um i think it really gives us a strong powerful permission position uh, in terms of how we uh, are approaching the market and how we are developing our digital capabilities in the broader sense. So my responsibility really is to kind of represent these brands in market and really elevate them within the industry.
1: Yeah, so the last time I had Hearst UK on the podcast, it was just just under a year ago, but um, we spoke with Laura Cohen from Good Housekeeping's product testing, and we got into a lot of that, you know, very commerce-focused and, and licensing side of things. But I think one of the things, um, and Faye, you mentioned this a little bit, is uh, the ability to get insights from readers. So I wanted to start off this episode by talking a little bit more about that very audience-focused data collection and and hearing from audiences directly. Because I think a lot of publishers that I'm speaking with right now are trying to figure out how to do that, especially in the US, because that's a really great way to definitely keep privacy top of mind by getting... That permission from readers, you know, to to pick their brain and get that data. Um, so to start there, I would love to know about the different audiences that you've been able to collect and, and what you're able to get from those audiences in terms of, you know, data and insights and and how you apply that to advertising. You know, I, I guess to start out, like how many different um, cohorts of of readers are you able to. Interact with in you know any given day.
3: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. So we're in quite an enviable position. Um, we have an in-house um, Hearst UK audience panel, um, and these are readers, but also digital users who are really engaged with our brands. Um, And they've put themselves forward to effectively be part of our business and support our business um, in giving their opinions um, and providing information to us that we can also use in, you know, both our editorial campaigns, they're creating content or commercial campaigns when we work with um, commercial partners. Um, But they're so engaged that it's it's really quite um, lovely that they trust our brand so much and they want to be part of our journey that they do kind of um, come to us and want to give their opinions. We've got around 50,000 of them on the panel currently. We've been growing that for a while now. Um, so that does show that like the level of um, engagement that we do have. Um, we have them across all of our sort of, 21 brands, as Ryan mentioned earlier. Um, and we can kind of cut those audiences um, in many different ways. So we do have a full um, spectrum of audiences, you know, very much covering off all the different types of people that we do have here in the UK. Um, and we hold a certain amount of data on them. And it's really interesting how... You know, they do allow us to ask them quite interesting, sensitive, sometimes private questions. Um, You know, we have women telling us about, you know, their experiences, the menopause. That's something they might not even discuss with their employer or with their families. Um, You know, we've had campaigns where we have spoken to women about their body confidence, We've had campaigns where we've been speaking to men about their mental health and me- mental wellness. It's really, really interesting how they do open up to us and provide quite um, revealing, um, quite open discussions and conversations. Um, and we do that through a number of different ways. We've obviously got the functionality to do surveys, um, but even the likes of kind of diaries. Some of the body confidence diaries we did were phenomenally kind of insightful in the ways that people are talking very openly to us um, as well as kind of uh, the discussion rooms that we do and focus groups for example and even things like bringing experts in from our friends of the brands um, and doing roundtable discussions which we all use in the way that um, we pull together our insight. Um, So we are in a very fortunate position Um, and one thing I would say is that It's really helped us through the pandemic. Um, We could go to market at quite a fast pace because, as other countries were, the UK was thrust into lockdowns. Um, It was like overnight shift in um, people's behaviours, their routines, their habits. And some of that was forced upon them. And then other parts, people trying to find these really positive ways of Um, you know, finding things to do with their time and their new kind of routines. So some of it was really positive, some of it quite negative, but they were telling us all about this. We had this fantastic coronavirus barometer that we were doing on a sort of fortnightly basis as we went into our first lockdown to get a real read and a a barometer of um, how people were feeling. Um, And all of that information was really, really valuable to us, which meant that we could really support our editors in the content they were producing, but also speak to our commercial partners finding those kind of really interesting um, aspects of how people's lives have changed um, and therefore how they could support them better in their lives and doing so obviously through campaigns and digital content with us. So, um, yeah, it's a really um, useful tool that I think when when we overlay it with digital behavioural data and also the expertise that we've got from our editors as well and our, as you mentioned, the Hearst Institute earlier, our product testers and other experts of our brands, It becomes a really powerful sort of trinity um, to be able to use the panel too.
1: So you mentioned you have 50,000 people now that sit on that Hearst UK panel. When was the panel first, I guess, created? And like how long did it take to get to that threshold
3: of of 50,000? well it's a slightly fluid figure actually because um, we always want to make sure that our panel is, is highly engaged so that they are an active um, group of people. We do sometimes do a purge if people haven't been engaging with surveys for a while so it can drop down but we always do try to build it back up and make sure that you know we are getting representation across our brand um, we brought in house um, Probably about four to five years ago now. Um, and that was a very conscious decision so that we could have more control over the panel and we could effectively you know, be shaping our own destiny. Obviously, as lots of people who are probably listening to this podcast would know that obviously if you are going to be commissioning research out, you've obviously got to go through a process of you know putting a brief out, getting lots of responses in, kind of having the pitch um, sessions. It can be quite lengthy. Um, for any single project so we can do a lot more at pace by having it actually in-house and that's a real win for us as I sort of mentioned through the pandemic that's been phenomenal but even to the point of if we're going to look at a specific category for example you know food and drink there's lots of different aspects of food and drink so you might want to do a series of surveys throughout the year rather than a kind of one hit and hope that you kind of gain all the insight from that so it gives us more flexibility um, an opportunity that we can work
1: with. Do you really engage them just through surveys or are there different ways of, um, I guess, engaging the panel or even like growing the panel? how do you how do you get people involved in that?
3: So growing the panel, we are always calling out to our um, existing audiences. Uh, We do so sometimes through social campaigns, through ads in our own print magazines, um, even through the kind of email newsletters that we send out. And it's really interesting how many people do kind of sign up through those channels because they do want to give their opinion and, and be heard and be part of the brands. Um, so it is obviously something that's really important for the the health of our brands and for us to kind of gain that, um, that insight coming through. Um, and that is something that we're always going to kind of uh, focus on in the future as well. One more question specifically
1: about the, the panel and then we can move on to the other areas of data collection. Cause I know you guys have a lot going on there as well, but do you have like advertising clients that come to you specifically wanting to engage with the panel and using it as a way to do custom research or, um, you know, really channeling a specific, you know, problem set or question, or even like, I guess you mentioned, you know, certain topics around like menopause or mental health. I'm sure brands find a really strong ability to to target a topic if they're like looking at how that can, you know, be implemented into a campaign. And that's how I've heard other publishers, you know, talk about um, panels like this. But I'm curious, like how, how, much do brands get to be involved in that, um, you know, panel survey or, or sending out a set of questions to the, the people involved?
3: Yeah, so there's a few different ways that um, brands and um, external advertisers can work with us in all of the research that we do. So when we identify certain topics or certain projects that we want to work on, because we've got such a broad network of clients um, and contacts that we work with already through obviously directly with the advertisers or through um, media agencies or PR agencies. Um, We are often on the pulse of what people are asking because we're sort of always feeding that through to the business. But we do sometimes actually go out to those advertisers and sort of ask, you know, is there anything that you want to know on a certain topic? Now, if it's relevant, we will probably include that in a survey. But that's very much about stuff that we are going to be doing ourselves anyway. Um, We do also allow... um, our advertisers to utilise our panel um, as part of kind of the campaigns that they're delivering or just standalone as their own um, uh, piece of research. That does come with kind of a cost and we obviously have a rate card for that, but it is a asset that they can utilise. Um, and that's obviously very much from the, um, the customer, the audience opinion side of things we also do use it for ad effectiveness, so that's built into our campaign so that we can use the panel to assess the ads, the performance, and obviously you know, make sure it's delivered on the, the KPIs that we're set out to do. And, and then even things like you know we use it to reach our customers um, in terms of some of the product tests that we're doing. So I know you mentioned earlier in the podcast again about the Hearst Institute in the UK, um, but we do all the reader-recommended um Uh, reviews for products where we send out those products to people they test them at home um, and then we make sure we kind of gain their their opinions um, from that so that they can then be accredited or or reader recommended as we would say so there's lots of different uses for the panel and there's lots of different methodologies that we we would use as well whether that is focus groups or you know standard surveys or polls or um, diaries um, Um, Even discussion rooms like written discussion rooms, that's all kind of the functionality that we've got available to us. And we are always trying to expand our functionality as well. So there's more things we're looking into for the future for that as well. Got
1: it. Awesome. And then, so I guess like building out the different ways in which clients can work with you to to enrich like campaigns or or use data like collected from other areas. I think you had mentioned um, behavioral is a a, a bigger area for, for data collection. And I'd love to get into like how your approach is to behavioral data, because I know a lot of publishers are testing out different first party data strategies. And so that could that could range from like, you know, contextual, behavioral, whatever. But I'm curious what your approach is and how you've kind of developed that over the past, um, you know, several years, especially in that kind of shifting to a more privacy focused data collection strategy and you mentioned um ryan that you work on like programmatic as well so i know that there's a lot of sticky areas there but i'd love to hear from you about how you're you know really honing your first party data strategy um, not just on the you know uh hearst uk panel because that's obviously first party data there but from the more like programmatic and, and digitally like you know native side of it how else are you really honing that like behavioral data collection
2: Absolutely. I think it's been like an incredible journey, like since I've been at Hearst UK uh, for the past five years in terms of how it's evolved and how quickly it's evolved in terms of what data is really. And I think it really comes down to the bare bones. So we, you know, the core of that is obviously around um, behavioural data. Absolutely. But I think there are other data sources out there that actually, you know, can really be combined with the core of what the behavioural data is. Um, and, you know, it was about two, three years ago, we we did a, an audit across the business to understand what data existed, you know, internally across all the different platforms we work with, um, across all of our different brands. And I think it, the, the numbers were staggering. We had about 50, 55 different sources of data across the business. So we kind of traditionally would always use and lean towards uh, a DMP, which most publishers out there will definitely be leaning into. Um And, you know, we have these waves of different challenges coming through. So where one day you may have a great innovation and idea and direction for data, actually legislation more so in Europe um, will determine that actually that route is probably not as feasible as you initially thought. So I think, you know, it comes down to the core of our brands and our relationship that we have with the users. So I think once you've got that foundation really laid out, then it's about, okay, how do we enrich this? And we are... Arguably, in a really fortunate position where we have our 21 uh, brands, and actually within those brands, you know, we can cover multiple lifestyle verticals. Now, I think the real critical part of this is that whilst you know most publishers will have uh, really good behavioural data segments, I think our brands represent the lifestyle of a user. You know, these are not things that a user will come to our site and actually, you know, for example, go to our L site. And think, oh, I just want to look at some fashion. These are life choices, you know, for that individual that they are a core passionate individual around fashion and beauty, for example. So, by their journey coming to our sites, they're coming to kind of reflect their passions in life through that behavioural data. And I think that's been really, really invaluable for us. So, I think where we see, I guess, a transition and how data matching, you know, that is a, a whole new world that is coming through, and the, or We say data matching and clean room technologies. There's a massive emergence around that. And I think it's really exciting me personally, because I think that this is an area that, you know, we can start to build really good, robust, strong relationships with our partners whilst respecting our users' privacy and building out a really strong picture of um, how users are reacting. I mean, for example, if you took a, uh, a client that was in the entertainment field, they would know exactly what their users are purchasing, or their consumers are purchasing in those categories. They know what types of um, TV products they would be buying, what their budgets might be, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what the bit that they miss at the moment is, okay, what's their life choices? How do I reach my consumers? How do I extrapolate a wider reach of users and uh, consumers for my products? And I think that's where, for me, the interesting part of the clean room emergence is that actually there is an opportunity now that we can bridge that gap and share and kind of look at enrichment processes that will allow us to not only understand our audiences more, but on the other side, understand, you know, allow clients to understand what their lifestyle choices and how we should speak to them. And I think, you know, from the Hearst panel that we have in the UK, uh, it's absolutely a real strong elevation of that. So, you know, whilst we can look at the content consumption. We can also look at the products purchased, and now we can have a one-to-one conversation with our audience and really dig deep in terms of the drivers around different um, areas. And you know, whilst we talk about you know um, how we target individuals, you know, what our ultimate goal is when we say about our user experience first policy is that we want to give our users a better experience and a better ad experience as well and make sure that the relevancy is just increased on a day-to-day basis.
1: So you mentioned clean rooms quite a bit, and and it sounds like you see a lot of value in the emergence of those options. I'm in our, in our coverage, and my colleague Tim um, wrote a, a story about this not too long ago, but there's some, I guess, concern or maybe like hesitancy from publishers as well around clean rooms in the fact that like, it, it's it's almost a question of how many do we have to be a part of? Like, when does it stop? Like how to like how extensive do we need to participate in these areas in order for them to be beneficial? I'm curious if you have any either qualms about like clean rooms as an option or if you see them as a truly valuable area, especially when you're like looking at data matching and and trying to figure out how to connect the dots not just in your own ecosystem but you know outside of that as
2: well. yeah, no, absolutely. It's a really, really good point actually, because I think that whilst we see emergence, and this is could be any technology that we see evolving and emerging, um, clean room technologies, they absolutely can be a powerful tool for good and to kind of increase engagement insights, understandings. But there are areas, you know, that could be misused or, you know, in different directions. And I think, you know, a testament to our own legal team, Um, they are very, very keen to ensure that the privacy um, of our users are upheld completely. Um, But I do think that, you know, whilst we, there is a kind of, I guess, a downside to this kind of emerging technology in terms of, you know, it it creates a, a gold rush that is the new data rush, shall we say, in terms of, you know, everyone wants to build their own known database. And I think this produces some challenges, I would say, I think where we've gone from, and it may be more specific to European countries initially, um, but where publishers now are seeing a need to drive their own known databases. Um, there's lots of strategies. Me as a user, I go through different sites and I can see the different strategies coming through in terms of how they're capturing emails. Now, you know, this is new technology, I would say, you know, albeit a few years old maybe, um, but it's really got the spotlight right now. So you see uh, an evolution amongst publishers in terms of okay, how do we grow our known database? For example, now you know the most common strategy that is in market at the moment is around the data walls. So you know they're exposed to a certain amount of um, articles, and then you have to register, to sign up to get unlimited access. Now picture a world where every single publisher you go to has got the CMP for GDPR compliances in terms of consent. And then all of a sudden, you've got a restriction around, you know, uh, the amount of articles you can see for free. For example, um, that to me seems like a, a potential of a shift from a major transition uh, around the free internet as we know it today. Now, my call out, I think, to anyone listening to this is that you know there has to be an element of collaboration. And I think that that exists within publishers, but also with clients and agencies and any partners that are involved with that chain. Because, you know, whilst we really kind of stand strong on the user experience first, um, we have to adopt that as an industry. You know, we we don't, I, could, I couldn't imagine my journey around different websites and publishers where I have to log in five times, for example, just to read five or six different articles. Um, so I think that that, could be the challenging side of it but I think the really interesting most immediate part of is around that level of enrichment that um, clients can get around their known users that they have and their consumers but then also from a, a Hearst perspective how we can work together to elevate that consumer's experience across both their brands and their sites but also our own publications as well.
3: There's also a real opportunity for the future as well and I think we're probably in a a slightly um, forward position in the sense that you know you should be able to kind of enrich from multiple um, locations and sources. Now, the fact that we've got a Hearst audience panel um, in the UK, which has a huge amount of data from people from surveys and discussion rooms and all different polls, for example, you know that is to a certain degree something that would be really interesting in the future to um, see if we can enrich those data sources as well because. It then brings closer together that kind of digital behavioural data with some of the kind of more opinion-based, emotion-led data. And what we're also trying to understand a lot with the work that we're doing is, um, and especially with clients, there's often a lot of people who say a certain thing but then behave in a different way. So there's this value action gap. Now, if you can kind of bring that closer and understand where that gap exists and how we can help support them, those two sources are kind of um, the digital side and the the opinion based side. It does give you more of an understanding of that and what's sort of going on behind the scenes. I think Ryan mentioned sort of barriers, triggers, blockers, things like that, that you can really kind of delve deeper into. So um, there is kind of lots of opportunity, I think, in the future.
2: Just to, um, I guess, finish that part off um, is that, The really interesting part that we're seeing emerge is around, you know, um, there's data matching one side of it, but then there's also an activation that we have where we can activate performance-led campaigns. Um, But within our data management platform, we can identify with that performance-led campaign the users that have engaged with that ad. Now, by default and proxy, that is an intent from a user across our portfolio that we can then segment in an isolation and actually, you know, give back to the client a level of insight in terms of, you know, your target audience. This is how they look, and this is the types of uh, articles. These are the kind of products that they're doing. So, I think the interesting part for me, <clears throat> and it'll be good to see how this unfolds over time, is that where traditionally, you know, we as a publisher would re- receive a, a request for response from a client or an agency um, with the target audience informed. Actually, we feel that we're in a position for our data capabilities now that we can help inform the brief that goes out in terms of, you know, what the personas are for their target audience through real data and real intent. Um, So I think it's a really interesting spin in terms of how we traditionally would receive a brief and respond back, but now we can actually support and help the client to um, identify their target audience.
1: And Ryan, just to to quickly kind of go on that um, that point you made about kind of needing to really work together as an industry to have a, I guess a solution that works across you know brands, not just have these kind of walled gardens and things of that nature. Are there any solutions out there right now that you, aside from like clean rooms, but are there any others out there that you're you know really keeping an eye on or you're you're excited to? Be a part of, or, or try, like what? I guess what's standing out to you so far? Because that's a question I've been asking a lot of publishers when, when talking about data recently.
2: Yeah, of course, yeah, and I think there are certainly a lot of initiatives uh, that are kind of emerging again, similar to the clean room technology, um, and more so, I guess, in the programmatic space. Um, but I think for me personally, it's interesting to see these developed right now, and I think we want to kind of observe the evolution in terms of the early days of how they're evolving. So I think for us in the immediate future, I think data matching is the clean, most cleanest way to be able to kind of facilitate a a unification and a harmonious relationship with a client to ensure that, you know, they can still reach the target audience that they need to reach. Um, And I think the, the initiatives, you know, they're born from technology companies most of them so I think that what I would love to see in an ideal world is a collaboration with the publishers to see and find a way if there is um we can work together around this unification of data I mean similar to phase point around the Hearst panel you know does that necessarily have to be restricted to a Hearst UK panel or can we work with different partners to kind of expand that out and have more I guess, diversity within that panel as well, in terms of different lifestyle verticals that we may be able to cover.
1: You mentioned, again, um, that kind of commerce piece of it and being able to learn more about, um, I guess, taking like tracking opinion, right? From like a a panel perspective, what people are saying, and then also seeing what they're doing, like the actual actions that are being made. And I think like commerce is a really strong way to, to find that data because people are actually going to a part of, Point of conversion, which I'm sure a lot of advertisers are really interested in learning about. How has, um, I guess, could you get a little bit more into like how the growth of commerce, um, especially in the past couple of years, has provided a sense of data or, uh, you know, further information about? like audiences and 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 how that's been able to inform campaigns like are are advertisers looking for more like commerce rooted options in their campaigns are they looking for like a hybrid approach with you know more you know buy now like bottom of the funnel campaigns i'm curious like how commerce kind of ties into this um you know ongoing need for more data
2: i think again it's another really interesting area um and i think you know i'm a little bit geeky at heart as well so uh these things really intrigue me in terms of how they all link up and um, you know, with the growth that we've seen with the obvious market conditions. And I think there's been an extrapolation of that because as a business, we've managed to pivot really quickly to kind of support this need from our users to kind of buy products online. Um, so we've really seen a growth in that area. And I think the bit that's really, really interesting is to start matching up the different elements of data that we have across the business in terms of you know where we see behaviors in terms of content consumption, how does that result into a purchase and what does that purchase look like? So I think that you know we we can start tying those two ends up now and combined with the Hearst UK panel as well, we can really have a deep dive in terms of you know informing what a user journey looks like that leads to a certain product. So I think what that has kind of generated at the moment is that traditionally you would see a massive disjoint between the kind of branding and awareness uh, side of uh, activations and then the performance and acquisition end of uh, a campaign. And I think now we're seeing it it blend together. Now, there's a few challenges out there, and I think there's probably going to be a lot of people listening here and a lot of brands and clients and even agencies where the two teams at the moment sit very apart you know, they may be having completely different targets on there. So we've been pushing uh, from a Hershey UK perspective to try and join the two together. And we do that through our capabilities around joining from our side, that behavioral content consumption, and also that purchase side of things. So, and we're seeing some good successes there as well. And I think the really Key part of this, and again, it's probably a, a, a nod towards the clean room emergence of technology, is that we want to be able to shift our metrics that we look at beyond clicks. I mean, you know, I hate saying that word. Clicks as a metric should not exist. It's too old. Uh, we need to move on. Um, but how we're going to do this is actually, you know, through the power of clean room technologies and that that single unifier ID. Um, it gives us the ability to be able to understand what we can see right now in terms of that user journey. And even if you know we're looking at a product purchase or even you know, some of the sampling campaigns that we've run across our portfolio, we've seen great success there. Um, but what it will allow us to do is to look beyond that initial purchase or that initial sample. And actually, we can start looking at the lifetime value of a, a, a consumer that we drive from our portfolio. So we can elevate that even further by looking at um, advocacy and loyalty as well. So when you are in this world of real people identifiers, it allows you to follow that user journey for a much longer period of time and much more accuracy. And again, this ladders back to why it's so important for publishers and clients and agencies to work much closer together in this space, um, because we can start to drive a higher value of user and really pin that back to a really accurate user journey that will help a client inform you know their future marketing strategies their partnerships their Yeah events. and I
3: think also that that user journey and that strategy it sometimes does start with us helping to inform the the clients as well because we're doing a lot of work that leans into um the power of positivity and also um uplifts in positive emotions that's something we've been doing over the last half of um 2021 and now we're you know continuing to do so in 2022 is we are looking at our ad effectiveness studies and looking at those through the lens of emotion and seeing which of those kind of emotions we have uplifted through the campaign. Um, And what's really interesting about that is that because obviously we are then measuring lots of the metrics through the, um, the purchase kind of funnel, if you kind of talk about it still in a funnel sense uh, you can kind of see where you're having an impact so whilst there's a lot of kind of advertisers and clients that are very much leading into the performance side and obviously that's very important there's very much an element of branding too so all of this is very much about trying to drive sort of um connections to brand and strengthening kind of brand as well as delivering on the results for the the sales too but if you can see kind of where you're having an emotional impact on that journey that helps us speak to them about like how we create the content how we deliver the ads the right kind of ways the formats the tone etc And we can kind of see where there's kind of strong points in those journeys. And what we've actually discovered is that, you know, I think it was something like a 31% uplift in those people who saw their um, emotions shifted positively by the Hearst campaigns. Um, And their intention to kind of purchase off the back of that was going through really strong. So you can kind of see some of the connections when, as we say, we kind of link the the digital side, the performance side to also brand and um, some more of the kind of um, softer metrics. But again, it's very important to be really clear on what that KPI is. And then we can make sure that we're kind of covering off the data um, to show that it's been delivered and then feedback and recommend to those clients of what they do in the future too.
1: Do you have any examples of campaigns that maybe have done that really well, especially from like the positivity, like lift? Um, like do you have any uh, either like categories that you see this working well in or, or clients that you can talk about to kind of contextualize some of what you're talking about and a more real world example? Because I feel like that helps try to illustrate what that like whole, you know, funnel process looks like.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. So um, I um, launched a few years back within um, Hearst UK this um, solution called Hearst Purpose. And um, a number of the campaigns that we develop, it's very much about helping people get more out of life, which is essentially our mission for our company. So every piece of content that we create is to help people get more out of life. Now, Hearst Purpose tries to tackle some of the challenges um, social issues or individual kind of barriers and blockers that are holding people back and therefore they can't you know get the most out of life if they're kind of struggling and can't work their way through something um and those campaigns are really interesting because we do measure a lot of kind of the emotive side of things there and the positive change that we can deliver so you know a lot of the um campaigns that we do have to do with social mobility or um, kind of things like the body confidence um, so we had it um, recently we've got a campaign with a sports um, equipment and um, brand and um, the campaigns called it starts with a bra it's a really interesting campaign because our um, editor-in-chief of women's health Kess Anderson, had identified that there was a lot of lower income women who couldn't get on their fitness journey because they were held back by the lack of funds to be able to exercise and kind of get into it. Now, the one piece of kit you actually need is a really comfortable and safe, well-fitted sports bra. So that's kind of where we started and we worked with this kind of um, sports brand um, partner. Helping out on grassroots to kind of deliver some of those bras to um, different charities across the country, but also creating this really interesting content um, that, you know, it helps women get onto their fitness journey. And it identifies and really taps into what were their personal challenges. If we sorted out the bra issue and kind of affording that, what's the next challenge? What's the next challenge and how do we help them? So, for example, creating workouts, which were easy to get into, exercise, didn't require any other kind of um, expenditure, um, and then real kind of things which are sort of really motivating for them. Um, and the uplift we saw on that, we saw some fantastic results where I think it was 72% of um, those women said that um, the brand had helped them to overcome their challenges um, with regards to kind of fitness. And that's fantastic when obviously you know, some of the challenges for them, you know, getting into fitness is, is um, quite big in their lives. Um, And then what we could also see, so that's kind of the positivity angle, but from the performance angle, we could see that um, there was an increase, I think, of around sort of 10% in um, consumer preference towards that sports brand. So what we are always trying to do is make sure that we take the kind of positive emotive, what is the thing that we have really impacted from a sort of more brand perspective, but also what's the performance that we've driven off the back of it, because the two have got to go hand in hand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like, in general, the media has shifted quite a bit to covering more body positivity and and having editorial pieces that talk about, you know, having that, you know, internalized shame erased and and changing the narrative. I think that we've seen a lot of shift in that as well. So um, but that's that's. Definitely like a a great stat to be able to see and share with brand partners, also. So I know we're we're close to end of time here, but the last question I have for you guys is is getting back into that more like broad data um, and and privacy conversation, you know, the future of of data collection is gonna be very different once the cookie is, you know, really. I guess, finally gone, we can say. I don't know. Um, but once the po- the cookie apocalypse comes, like I think there's going to be a big, you know, changeover. In, in, and there's a lot of concern right now. But I'm curious what you guys are kind of, you know, really keeping your eye on in the next year, you know, leading into that. And also maybe what trends you might start seeing um, or what you think we can expect to kind of keep an eye on in the next year but um just to to kind of round out the episode you know what are you keeping your eye on what are you you know most concerned or even excited about you know as this shift really takes place
2: absolutely i think from my perspective it's around um the clarity i guess around gdpr and how it should be portrayed like whilst it's been implemented a few years ago now uh, we're still trying to understand you know the clarity around how we implement that and push that out so and additionally, you know what I was saying earlier around every publisher in market is having this drive and push to get that known database. So I'm I'm really keeping an eye in terms of the impacts that that's going to have generally on internet users and you know strategies that develop around that. So it probably comes back to that collaboration piece. Um, but that probably will be an eventual kind of outcome over time uh, that would have to really lean into that area to understand that a little bit more but one thing that gives uh, me confidence being at Hirsch UK at the moment is that you know where we have this policy of uh, user experience first I'm confident that we've built such a strong relationship with our users that actually you know they're happy to kind of consent to to tracking across our sites because actually we're trusted. So um, I think it will be uh, yeah okay for us uh, hopefully. Um, but we're we're making every move that we can to ensure that that's good.
3: Yeah, I think I agree with that. Okay for us definitely, Ryan. Because yeah, as we've seen through the panel, though. Like, the amount of people that tell us uh, various different things um, that could be sensitive or private to them. You know, they are very willing because they do trust us as their brand. You know, they really connect with us. Um, So I'm one of those people where, you know, I love getting my head into kind of data and insight and I'm a very curious person. So I'm really excited, as Ryan's kind of mentioned also about um, kind of the amount of data that's coming together and being available in one place, being enriched. Um, I think, you know, when you've got such a, a wealth of data and you've got the opportunity to interrogate it in lots of different ways, there's so much opportunity that sits there that, you know, probably the difficulty is that we haven't got enough time or people to be able to literally just dive in and kind of start pulling all the kind of great insights out that you could then, um, you know, create into campaigns and go out proactively to market with. But there's a huge opportunity there. And I think if you know, we do it on a regular basis, there might be a survey that, you know, we've done initially... Um, and we've you know spoken about it in a certain way, but we'll go back to it and we'll recut it and we'll try and find new insights because there's so many different ways that you can cut data by other obviously like different demographics or even by different questions you asked that um, you know you can find some really great stuff, some nuggets that you're already sitting on there's like a pot of gold you're already sitting on um, which then you know you can go back and speak to clients about or it can help support your um, your editorial teams. Um, we have this great insight quite recently where we did a survey on women and their activity levels in terms of fitness and exercise and when we then started looking at it from a biological perspective we realized that any stage in a woman's life um one in three or yeah a third of women um are prevented from exercising because they're a woman because of their biology because of periods because of pregnancy because of postnatal because of menopause and you kind of go god that's a really interesting nugget Let's see how we can create a campaign around that and we'll go out and speak to all the kind of sportswear brands that are doing pregnancy ranges now or all the fitness and nutrition and vitamin brands that are... um, you know effectively looking at women and how you train around your menopause, around your uh, monthly cycle, for example. So there's lots of really interesting opportunity that I think you can get from having more data in the same place with the ability to interrogate it. And I think that's just going to be fantastic for us.
1: Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and and really digging deep into data and and you know all these fun topics. Um, this is this has been really really fascinating, and I, I think there's a lot to you know. Learn from how you guys have been approaching that, you know, very purpose-driven, you know, data as well. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
2: Thanks so much for having thank us. You. It's thank been
1: you. a pleasure. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.